You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 429 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Before we jump back into the events taking place at Chattanooga, we wanted to take a few minutes here at the beginning of the show to remind y'all that connected to our joining up with Airwave Media, there will now be ads included with the podcast episodes which you may have already noticed. But we just wanted to remind you guys that the members of the Strawfoot Brigade will continue to get the shows ad-free over on Patreon. We mention Patreon quite a bit, and it's just the platform or website that we use to host the membership program, which we call the Strawfoot Brigade. And the membership program on Patreon will continue to be a separate endeavor not connected with our partnership with Airwave Media. Exactly. So that means we're able to continue to make both regular and members episodes available on Patreon ad-free for the folks in the Strawfoot Brigade as part of their support of the podcast. In fact, speaking of members episodes, just yesterday we released members episode number 146, which is about a surprise visit the Imperial Russian fleet paid to the United States in 1863. Yep, it's a pretty interesting story. Of course, here with the regular episodes, we're also right in the middle of an interesting story. As you guys will recall, with the last episode, we outlined Ulysses S. Grant's plan for launching an attack that would break the deadlock at Chattanooga. Grant was chomping at the bit to get started and had set November 21st as the original date for the opening of the attack. But because Sherman couldn't get into position in time, the operation had been postponed to the 22nd and then pushed back yet again to the 23rd. And then with the last show, we also talked about Braxton Bragg's dilemma with regard to Knoxville and the Confederate push to capture that place. James Longstreet had pushed Ambrose Burnside back into the federal fortifications protecting Knoxville, but then Longstreet told Bragg he wasn't strong enough to actually storm the enemy works. Bragg was in a fix because all the signs pointed to the fact Grant was almost ready to launch his big attack at Chattanooga. Bragg's force at Chattanooga was already outnumbered, 
So if Bragg weakened himself further by sending reinforcements to Longstreet up at Knoxville, then it would probably result in disaster for the Confederates at Chattanooga. Yet the only thing that might stave off defeat at Chattanooga would be a quick and decisive victory by Longstreet at Knoxville, and Longstreet seemed unable to pull that off without large numbers of reinforcements. In the end, Bragg decided to risk everything on the hope of quickly defeating Burnside and capturing Knoxville. So, on November 22nd, he issued orders sending two divisions north to reinforce Longstreet. And so, very early the next morning, the 23rd, Patrick Claiborne's division and Bushrod Johnson's division pulled out of line and marched to nearby Chickamauga Station. Hour after hour, trains came and went, hauling off their loads of soldiers. However, at mid-morning, with one brigade of Bushrod Johnson's division and all of Claiborne's still waiting to board the trains, the operation came to an abrupt halt when a message arrived from Army headquarters. The message said that the Yankees appeared to be stirring, and so any of the Confederate troops that hadn't yet set off were to be held at the station until further notice. There they waited until early afternoon, when another message arrived telling them to come back quickly. Grant's big attack had finally kicked off. That meant for Braxton Bragg, who had gambled he'd have time to reinforce Longstreet, time had just run out. By November 23rd, although Sherman still wasn't ready, Ulysses S. Grant had received information that the Confederates might be perhaps withdrawing from their lines around Chattanooga, and so Grant decided that some action was necessary, partly as a demonstration to distract Bragg from the actual points the Federal attack would land, and partially to find out if the rebels were indeed pulling out of their lines outside Chattanooga. The obvious place for such a demonstration was the Confederate center in front of Missionary Ridge, since a move against either of the rebel flanks at this point in time would draw attention to the very spots Grant wanted Bragg to ignore. So Grant issued orders for George Thomas to advance a division or two from the Army of the Cumberland and seize a knobby hundred-foot hill that stood almost alone in the otherwise flat ground between Chattanooga and Missionary Ridge. The hill, known locally as Orchard Knob, was part of the rebels' advance line, and after Thomas's troops seized it, it would provide the Federals with a handy vantage point and artillery position. George Thomas wasn't one to do things by half measures, and for the movement against Orchard Knob, he massed no less than four divisions, comprising about 23,000 men, and formed them up in parade ground order out in front of the Federal Defensive Works. The long straight lines, shoulder-to-shoulder ranks, and bright flags snapping in the November breeze all made for a truly impressive sight. It was war as the thousands of tough veterans on both sides had always imagined it to be, but they'd never actually seen it on a battlefield. So at odds did the awe-inspiring picture-book panorama seem 
from the grim reality of combat that the watching Confederates assumed the Yankees were simply parading for a grand review. The rebels were, therefore, taken by surprise when the Federal's solid ranks kept right on marching steadily toward their lines. A brief and by no means picture-book fight flared up around Orchard Knob, but the thin Confederate forces holding that spot were no match for the Army of the Cumberland's massed columns. Within less than half of that late autumn afternoon, Thomas's troops had seized Orchard Knob and also had the information that the Confederate Army was still present in its lines in force. As you guys might have guessed, the enemy activity Grant had thought might be the beginnings of a Confederate withdrawal was in fact the movement of Claiborne's and Bushrod Johnson's divisions toward the railroad depot at Chickamauga Station, where they planned to board the trains to move north and reinforce Longstreet at Knoxville. If the attack on Orchard Knob had told Grant the Confederates weren't pulling out of their lines around Chattanooga, the operation also told Bragg a thing or two. Bragg assumed the obviously limited scope of the federal assault, that is, the capture of Orchard Knob, meant that Grant's big attack at Chattanooga wasn't yet ready to kick off, but was probably still a day or two away. However, that knowledge still meant that Bragg's gamble to reinforce Longstreet and score a quick and decisive victory at Knoxville had failed. The basic plan might still work, but now Bragg would have to first fight and win at Chattanooga. This would be something new for the Army of Tennessee, since Braxton Bragg never voluntarily accepted battle at the time and place of the enemy's choosing. He instead preferred to seize the initiative by taking the offensive. However, now, it seemed, circumstances dictated Bragg had no choice. The rebel army's position on the high ground outside Chattanooga looked strong, but Braxton Bragg was realistic enough to believe that if Grant felt almost ready to launch his grand assault, then the Confederates would need all the manpower they could muster to deal with it. And so, Bragg sent orders recalling Claiborne's and Johnson's divisions. It was too late for most of Bushrod Johnson's division, which the trains had already carried off, but all of Claiborne's division and one of Johnson's brigades that was still waiting at the station immediately started back to Chattanooga. Since the threat on November 23rd had seemed to be directed solely against his center, or right center, in the Missionary Ridge sector, Bragg also gave orders that the Confederates, for the first time, should begin entrenching and throwing up breastworks along the crest of Missionary Ridge. You see, up until now, there had been no such defensive works up on the crest itself, but only a line of rifle pits down at the base of the ridge. It was admittedly very late in the game to begin entrenching and throwing up breastworks on the ridge itself, but supply difficulties would have made it very challenging to maintain large numbers of troops up on the crest line over long periods of time. Therefore, to the Confederates, it had seemed more practical to wait and move the men up there only when a battle seemed to be imminent.
That night, across the Tennessee River and behind a chain of small hills that protected against prying Confederate eyes on Lookout Mountain and Missionary Ridge, Sherman's camps were stirring around midnight on November 23rd. By 2 a.m. on the morning of the 24th, under Sherman's personal supervision, the men of Brigadier General Giles Smith's brigade piled into the pontoon boats that had been secretly constructed some distance up a North Bank Inlet, and they shoved off into the Tennessee. They were to be the assault party that would secure Sherman a foothold on the Confederate side of the river. Proceeding down the river as quietly as they could, muskets loaded but not capped so as to avoid a noisy misfire that would give them away, the Federals approached the landing area on the south bank on either side of the mouth of Chickamauga Creek. It was about half past two when they splashed ashore, taking the rebel pickets by surprise and capturing all but one of them. With the boats now empty, save for the Confederate prisoners and their guards, the oarsmen now rowed the pontoons back to the north bank and began the laborious process of ferrying across the rest of the division. That, too, went off without a hitch, and then the second of Sherman's divisions began to embark, and by the time the sun rose on the morning of the 24th, two full divisions, amounting to some 8,000 men, were entrenching and fortifying their foothold on the south bank of the river. With satisfaction, Sherman noted that the weather was gloomy with low gray clouds spitting a misting rain. The surrounding heights where the rebels had their observation post, particularly on Lookout Mountain, were cloaked in fog, making it much more difficult for the enemy to figure out exactly what he was up to. With the coming of daylight, Baldy Smith arrived on the scene. He was in charge of the engineering arrangements, so under his supervision and the still watchful eye of Sherman, the boats used to ferry the troops across the river were now used in the assembly of a pontoon bridge. Sherman was impressed, saying, I have never beheld any work done so quietly and so well, and I doubt if the history of war can show a bridge of that extent, 1,350 feet, laid down so noiselessly and well in so short a time. While the engineers worked and the troops on the far side of the river entrenched, the little steamboat Dunbar came chuffing up the river from Chattanooga to join the operation. The Dunbar ferried Sherman's 3rd Division across the river during the course of the morning. The Confederate counterattack that Sherman and his men had expected never materialized, and the morning's combat was limited to some picket firing and a half-hearted exchange of long-range artillery fire. Around noon, 11th Corps Commander Oliver Otis Howard arrived by way of the South Bank, having moved directly north from the Federal lines outside Chattanooga. Howard brought one of his brigades with him. Twenty minutes later, the pontoon bridge was completed, and Jefferson C. Davis's division began to cross. Davis's troops were from the Army of the Cumberland and were on loan to Sherman for the operation. And so, by early afternoon, the landing on the south bank of the Tennessee had been transformed from a precarious foothold to a solid bridgehead held by a dozen brigades of infantry and as many batteries of artillery from all three of the formations under Grant's command at Chattanooga. 
that is, Sherman's men from the Army of the Tennessee, Howard's 11th Corps troops from the Army of the Potomac, and Davis's contingent from the Army of the Cumberland. The lodgment there north of Missionary Ridge was connected to the rest of Grant's force both by the pontoon bridge and directly overland into Chattanooga along the south bank. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So far, the Federal's plan for the 24th had gone off without a hitch. So all Sherman needed to do now was march over and seize the north end of Missionary Ridge, then move south down its crest, rolling up the Confederate line as he went. Looking southwestward, Sherman could see the near end of the ridge about a mile and a half away across the relatively flat, open, rolling landscape, with nothing to impede his advance but a few hundred Confederate skirmishers and perhaps a few patches of marshy ground. And at one that afternoon, the Federals stepped off and, with only light skirmishing, reached the nearest high ground and scrambled up the slope. On reaching the top, however, Sherman's skirmishers found that instead of looking south along the continuous spine of Missionary Ridge, they were gazing down into a deep, steep-sided ravine. Missionary Ridge proper was actually on the far side of that ravine. So, plunging down into it, then working their way up again, Sherman's men finally got over to the spot they had been aiming for in the first place. 
A line of enemy skirmishers was coming their way down the spine of the ridge, but the rebels were handily driven off, and the Federals succeeded in securing their hold on the north end of Missionary Ridge. By this time, it was 3.30 on a short, late autumn afternoon that had rarely seen the sun break through the overcast. With not much more than an hour at best of anything like daylight remaining, Sherman had to quickly decide what to do next. The day had been one of unbroken success for Sherman. His men now held the northern end of Missionary Ridge, and he assumed they could sweep along it to the south whenever they chose, rolling up the rebel line in the process. However, the short remains of a late November afternoon wouldn't suffice for that task, and, as Sherman saw it, the real danger now was that the Confederates would launch a counterattack to throw the Federals off the ridge. Indeed, Giles Smith's brigade, skirting Chickamauga Creek on the far left of Sherman's line, had just had a brush with the Confederate force of unknown strength on the opposite bank of the stream. Casualties had been few, although Smith was one of them, and the incident and the confusion it generated reinforced Sherman's thinking that Bragg was bound to do something to counter the Federal lodgment. So Sherman decided it was best to use what little daylight remained to consolidate his gains and have his troops dig in, ready to fight off whatever Bragg threw at them. Braxton Bragg didn't like the fact the Federals had seized the north end of Missionary Ridge, but he was in no position to do much about it. In fact, there was little Bragg could have done had Sherman, instead of stopping, decided to push south late that afternoon down the crest of the ridge. It seemed safe to say that if Sherman could have known the situation within the Confederate lines that afternoon and how it would change by the next morning, he would never have issued those halt orders at 3.30, clouds and darkness notwithstanding. Bragg had learned of Sherman's river crossing that morning and had ridden up to the north end of Missionary Ridge to have a look at it. The Confederate commander had been thinking that Grant would try to cut off his link with Longstreet by making a move against the Confederate right at Chattanooga. But Bragg realized that this river crossing operation had other ramifications as well, because within striking distance of this Federal force, by means of a movement around the north end of Missionary Ridge, was Bragg's rail connections, not only with Longstreet up in East Tennessee, but also with Atlanta down to the south. This was too dangerous a threat to ignore, but Bragg had precious few troops available with which to counter it, since he had gambled on reinforcing Longstreet in the hopes of quickly capturing Knoxville. Bragg decided to use two brigades to cover the threat to his rail connections. One of Claiborne's brigades, now on its way back from Chickamauga Station, while the other brigade was from Frank Cheatham's division, then stationed near the other end of the Confederate line in Chattanooga Valley between Missionary Ridge and Lookout Mountain. By the by, it was the brigade from Cheatham's division that had had that brush with Giles Smith's Federals along Chickamauga Creek that had given Sherman a scare. 
With Claiborne's other three brigades, Bragg hoped to counterattack and seize and hold the high ground at the north end of Missionary Ridge. After receiving Bragg's recall order, Claiborne had galloped ahead of his troops when a messenger brought word that Sherman's Federals were even then moving on to the north end of Missionary Ridge. Claiborne quickly brought up his lead brigade, three regiments of Texans led by Brigadier General James A. Smith, and sent them charging along the crest to try to dislodge the Yankees before they secured their grip on the north end of the ridge. But it was already too late. The Texans' hasty attack was the push that was turned back by Sherman's skirmishers just before he called a halt on the afternoon of the 24th. Sherman's Federals may have seized the northern end of Missionary Ridge, but it didn't take Patrick Claiborne long to realize the Yankee general had made a mistake by halting instead of pushing on down the ridge. That's because Missionary Ridge's long, sloping sides were creased with deep gullies, and its crest undulated in dips and knolls. Claiborne's experienced eye quickly grasped the potential of the situation. He pulled Smith's Texans out of their advanced position and drew them back several hundred yards, wrapping their lines around one of the many humps of the ridgeback, into a sort of hilltop defense so they were facing in three directions. The hilltop Claiborne chose was the highest point on that end of Missionary Ridge, called Tunnel Hill, because that was the point where the railroad pierced the ridge, entering a tunnel there. With Smith's Texans positioned to his satisfaction in the last fading light of the short November day, Claiborne strengthened his defenses at Tunnel Hill by quickly and skillfully positioning his other two brigades as well. That meant the next day, when Sherman's Federals tried to push south down the spine of Missionary Ridge, they would find Claiborne's Confederates squarely in their path. Grant had meant for Sherman's operation to be the main event on the 24th, the first day of his all-out offensive against the Confederates at Chattanooga, but most of the attention on both sides of the lines was instead turned toward what became one of the most dramatic events of the battle, and, in fact, one of the most dramatic events of the entire war. We have to backtrack a bit to know that high water in the Tennessee River had broken the pontoon bridge at Brown's Ferry before the last of Sherman's divisions, commanded by Brigadier General Peter Osterhaus, could follow the rest of Sherman's men toward their position over on the far Federal left, where they prepared for the river crossing that would let them get at the north end of Missionary Ridge. Grant had, up until then, resisted the urgings of both George Thomas and Joseph Hooker that Hooker be allowed to assault Lookout Mountain. Though an impressive pile of earth and rock, the mountain offered Grant relatively little, militarily speaking. That's because Bragg's line of supply and retreat were at the other end of his position, behind Tunnel Hill at the north end of Missionary Ridge. Therefore, taking Lookout Mountain on the other side of the battlefield wouldn't bring Grant any closer to his goal of destroying Bragg's army. 
However, with Osterhaus's troops stranded on the wrong side of the river, so to speak, with regard to the rest of Sherman's force, that left them positioned on the west side of Lookout Mountain with Hooker's troops, which meant that Hooker would have three divisions there, and that was a larger force than Grant wished to leave sitting idle. And so, reluctantly, Grant gave in and allowed that Hooker could attack Lookout Mountain. Perhaps it would draw the Confederates' attention away from Sherman's move against the north end of Missionary Ridge, which, after all, was where Grant expected the truly decisive results to be produced. And, having set the stage for Hooker's capture of Lookout Mountain, we're going to hit the pause button here, or this will end up being an hour-long episode, which might sound good to you guys, but is a little more than we want to bite off right now. So we'll pick back up right here next time. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is another Gettysburg book from our TBR pile. It's Gettysburg's Southern Front, Opportunity and Failure at Richmond, by Hampton Newsom. Newsom's extremely well-written and well-researched book, as you might guess from the title, looks at federal efforts to threaten Richmond while Robert E. Lee was invading Pennsylvania, which is a topic that's never received much attention, and certainly not a book-length treatment like this one. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. At the top of the show, we mentioned the benefits of joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon, and we want to give a shout-out to the folks who have signed on most recently and thank them for their support of the podcast. So thanks to Nancy C., Royce K., and John L., Jeff K., Michael B., Kathleen H., and Aaron's Civil War Travels. We also want to thank Gerald L. and Peter B. for their donations. And then as the curtain comes down on this episode, we'll remind you that the music you hear at the start and at the end of every show is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.